As we open God's Word together, let's ask Him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, our eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with your servants according to your steadfast love and teach us your statutes. We are your servants. Give us understanding that we may know your testimonies. And hear our prayers, for we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you're visiting with us, as I said earlier, we're glad to have you here this morning. We've been considering a series together through 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and we've come to uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And we're going to begin our reading together at verse 6 and read through verse 13. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning our reading at verse 6, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. I read those last couple verses to round out the section, but we won't really consider them together as part of our sermon this morning. We're going to focus on verses 6 through 13. Um, We've noticed before that when we've studied Paul's letters, he has a way that he likes to write. We saw this in the first letter that he wrote to the Thessalonians. The same is true in the second letter he writes, that Paul often begins with doctrine. Uh, what we would call those things that God calls us to believe. Um, And then he would always get into ethics, then how we're to live in light of the truth that we believe. And he generally proceeds in that way. Here are the things you need to believe. Here are the ways now you need to live in light of those things. Um, And that's what we find Paul doing here. He's talking about how to live and particularly sharing an ethical concern, a life concern he has uh, for the church in Thessalonica how the church needs to deal with those in its midst who continue to be idle. Uh, We know this is not the first time Paul has broached this subject with the church. Uh, He talked to them about this in the first letter he wrote to them. Uh, So we can read in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, and 12 that he wanted them to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. 
Um, and he returned to that theme in chapter 5, verse 14, saying, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And so here Paul is returning to the subject of idleness, um, and it must have been an issue for that church. It must have been an issue on Paul's mind. This is the second longest section of this letter. Uh, the longest is on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the second light, longest in the letter is dealing with uh, the topic of idleness in the church. Um, so as we see Paul dealing with this reality of how to live, we can learn a lot from how to live uh, from these words. And so what are the three things that Paul really communicates to us in this passage? Well, first we have the commands against idleness. Um, we have commands against idleness that we have to take seriously and to think about how Paul approaches the subject. Secondly, we have conduct to imitate. Paul says, you're not to do this. Here's what you are to do. And that's what God's word often helpfully does for us, says, this is not the way to live. Now this is the way to live. Uh, so we have the commands against idleness. Then we have the conduct to imitate. And finally, we have a call to persevere. Um, and so we want to think about that as well, the call to persevere in this chapter. Uh, so that's what we want to think about today, the commands against idleness, the conduct to imitate, and the call to persevere. Um, again, we have commands against idleness because clearly this is a problem in that church that Paul needs to confront. Uh, we know several things about these churches in Macedonia. The one thing we know about them is that they were very poor churches. These were not churches that had a lot of financial resources and a lot of money. But despite being very poor churches, they were very generous churches. Uh, they are known throughout the early church for their generosity, uh, for the amount of money that they raise and send other places, even out of their poverty. Um, and so they're known to be both a church that has very little, but shares a lot. Um, and what a wonderful testimony that is to these churches that that was their reputation. Uh, but to anyone who, is, who has little and shares a lot, there is the danger that there are people who take advantage um, and there were clearly people in the Thessalonian church who were being cared for by the church, who weren't working themselves, uh, but were looking to the church to supply all of their means of living. Um, and the church, out of its generosity, as, out of a Christian spirit, was doing that. But these people were becoming a burden to the church. And Paul had earlier come to them and said, people ought not to live like this, burdening the church out of their idleness, um, but rather they should work. Um, and Paul has had to address this once already, and he comes and has to address it again a little bit more forcefully this time, um, as you always have to do when you try one time and people don't learn the lesson. Uh, parents know that with dealing with children. You may come uh, one time to talk about it one way, and if you have to keep addressing it, uh, it might change how you address it with children if the behavior is not changing. Um, and Paul has to do that as well. But before we look at the content of what he says in his commands against idleness, I think it's important to take note of his tone. How Paul talks to the church, I think, is very important um, because he tempers his authority with tenderness. Uh, we can learn a lot not just from what the apostles say, but from how they say it. Um, and it's not just the content of Paul's commands against idleness that we should take note of, but also his tone how he tempers his authority with them with tenderness. Um, how does he do that? He continues to address them as brothers in the Lord. 
He continues to say, brothers in the Lord, don't do this. Brothers, don't do this. And what does that communicate to God's people, even as he's commanding them to change what they're doing? He's communicating clearly to them, I consider you a brother in Christ. I'm treating you as a brother in Christ. Um, He's approaching them as a brother to a brother or a brother to a sister to encourage them not to do things that are detrimental for them. And his tone is conveying that tenderness towards them. And why does he temper that authority with that tenderness? Well, because he doesn't want to scatter them by his his commands. He doesn't want to come and hit them with a hammer and get them all just to, to scatter before his authority. What is, the, what is the point of him sharing these things? He wants to draw them to Christ. He wants to draw them into the Christian community. He wants to pull them in, not drive them away. And that's always the challenge of church discipline, to come authoritatively to people who need to change how they're living but to temper that authority with enough tenderness that they're being drawn back in rather than driven away. That it comes clearly that the admonitions come in love to fellow brothers and sisters to do what? To gather them back in. That they might be reconciled to Christ and reconciled to His church. Um, And Paul does that here in a beautiful way. Because this is always to be the purpose of church discipline, to communicate love and to speak authoritatively in love, but to speak with the tenderness that shows the desire is for a restoration. Not for you to go, but for you to return, to come back to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Come back and be enfolded into the people of God and take up the place that you need to have in God's people. Paul speaks this way because that's the way the Lord is with his people. The Lord speaks tenderly to the broken. The Lord came as a Lord who didn't break bruised reeds, um, but who spoke tenderly to Jerusalem to tell her that her warfare was over. He speaks authoritatively, but he speaks tenderly. And we should always worry about our tone in the way that we speak. Um, Paul gives us a great lesson here about the tenderness that tempers his authority. Now, that just because he's tender doesn't mean he still doesn't speak authoritatively, right? So we don't want to make the mistake either direction of thinking you can compromise the truth for the sake of love or love for the sake of truth. You have to be concerned with both, and Paul is concerned with love and the way he speaks, but it doesn't compromise the truth of what he has to say. He still speaks authoritatively to the church and commands them in Christ's name regarding those who are being idle. And again, it's important to recognize that these are people who are people who could work but refuse to. Uh, These are not people who have difficulties that make it hard for them to find work or get work or who don't have the ability to work. That's not who Paul is talking about. They're people who both refuse to work and expect the church to fund their life. Um, who are both being um, stubborn and being a burden. This is who Paul is talking about. Um, and we might ask, why, why so much about idleness? Uh, why is God so concerned about idleness? Um, in the first place, we could say it's because God is not an idle God. Um, God is a God who is at work. 
Uh, Even though the Father has rested from His work in creating the world, He is always at work preserving the world and moving the world towards the end for which He's made it. Our Lord Jesus Christ is always at work, ever living to intercede for us before the Father. He's always at work as our prophet, priest, and king, defending us and preserving us in the salvation He's won for us, speaking to us out of His Word by His Spirit. The Spirit is a working spirit. Uh, continuing to speak, continuing to bring people from death to life, sanctifying, sanctifying God's people after the image of His Son that, until we reach perfection in the age to come. God is a working God, and He's created us in His image to be a working people. Um, and so God wants to encourage us in that to take up our proper roles as image bearers of God and to do His work. And that's the command that comes to the idol. But notice the first command that comes, comes to the rest of the church. That's who Paul begins with in the first verse. Um, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Uh, The first command really comes to the rest of the church about keeping away from the idol. Um, Paul had instructed the church, admonished them uh, to try to get them to change course so they would aspire to live busy lives um, quietly in proper work, giving a good witness to the watching world. That's what he'd wanted from them. Uh, But those admonitions seem not to have been effective. And so now Paul steps up what the church is called to do. Uh, The church is now called not to admonish them, but to keep away from them. And of course, whenever we come across an instruction like this, we have to ask, what did Paul mean by that? What is the sense in which the church is supposed to keep away from the idol? Uh, Well, this is not in the sense of excommunication, um, but it does heighten what they're to do to show the seriousness of the problem of the idol and the problem they're posing in the church. To show the seriousness of what it is to refuse to do what you've been commanded in the name of the Lord to do. Uh, It's a serious business to have the Lord say something to you and then for you to say no. Right? And so that's part of church discipline too. If people will not repent, will not turn, will not change the way they're living, to step up what is being done to communicate to them the seriousness of their misconduct. Uh, to show them the seriousness of the way that they're walking. And there's a sense in which the church is to withhold something of the intimate fellowship with the idol in order that they would come to see the seriousness of their sin. To recognize that you can't have complete fellowship with the Lord and His saints if there's not complete harmony with what He's called us to do, uh, both in doctrine and in life. If someone's walking openly in opposition to God's law, there are consequences that follow. And there's a sense of that loss of earthly fellowship uh, will communicate the danger that they are in of losing heavenly fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, And so the church is to help them to see the seriousness of that path, that the sinner who is on a path like that will either need to turn from it or eventually lose fellowship with the Lord because they'll show that they really don't have a part in Christ if they will not follow His Word. And Paul is calling the church not to enable the idol. Um, By their silence and their continued fellowship, 
but to keep away from them for a time until they return to Christ. So the, the first calling is to the rest of the church, don't enable the idol, uh, keep away from that practice. And then the second command comes to the idol themselves. And we read about that in verses 10 through 12. Um, they're not just idol we see in these instructions. They're also people who in their idleness are causing trouble in the church. Um, we have a wonderful translation here that captures something of the wordplay that Paul uses in Greek. Don't be, be busy, don't be busy bodies. Right, that's a vivid way of saying it, a vivid way of remembering it. Because Paul's saying, when you don't have work of your own to do, what do you end up doing? All kinds of stuff you shouldn't do. All the things you're supposed to be busy with, you're not busy with. And what does that let you do? You get busy with all these things that aren't your business. Um, you become a busybody. You become involved in all these things that don't, don't, aren't supposed to be yours to deal with. Um, and so we see something else of what the idol are doing in the church. If they're unwilling to work and the church is supporting them so they don't have to work for themselves, then what are they doing? They're running around getting into other people's business and causing another burden to the church. They're meddling in the affairs of other people. That's what they're spending their time doing. And so Paul's commands really are very simple to the idol. You need to settle down and get to work. You need to stop mooching off the church. You need to stop being idle and you need to get to work. Um, it's not fair that you make, the other, make everyone in the church support you and then become a double burden by running around and causing trouble. Um, stop mooching off the church, stop being idle, get to work. Um, and Paul has the authority to say that because he can point to his own conduct to imitate. Right? He can give commands against idleness, and then he can point to himself and say, now you know what the conduct to imitate is because you saw how I lived among you. Um, that we took important pains in doing these things. So he can make these commands against idleness because he has a certain conduct among them that gives him the authority to say these kinds of things. Because he can say to them, was I idle when I was among you? Is that the example you saw in me or in my, in my companions when we came to do this church planting work? Uh, no. Right? He calls them back. He calls their minds back to when he and his companions first got there. And he said, what did we do when we came among you? Um, did we depend on you to support us? No, actually, we supported ourselves. That's what Paul says at the end of uh, verse 7. Um, you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. We were not idle when we were with you. Uh, we worked. We labored. Um, we supported ourselves. In fact, he says we labored day and night. Um, you, he would have to do that, right? He would have to labor during the day to work to support himself, and then he would have to labor the rest of the time trying to plant and do this church work. He was doing two jobs at the same time, working day and night among them. He said, you saw that example in us to make our living and to preach the word of Christ, uh, to do both of those things. That means a lot of hard work, right? Communicating that, that laboring day and night is meant to say extraordinarily hard work on your behalf. And Paul draws their attention. Why did we do that? Why did we work so hard when we were among you? Was it because we didn't have a right to be supported? 
Well, Paul says, no, that, that wasn't it. Paul alludes to that right in verse 9. It was not because we do not have that right. They had the right to be supported. The Lord Jesus Christ said the laborer deserves his food. But Paul and his companions, despite having the right to have that done, laid down that right. And why did they lay down that right? So that they wouldn't be a burden to the church. And so they would give the church an example to imitate. It's an important example for God's people to recognize in the lives of these saints. It's a beautiful testimony to Christian love. For Paul to say, we had a right. We had a right to be supported. We had a right not to have to work like that night and day, both in the gospel and in supporting ourselves. We had the right not to do that, but why did we do it? For your sakes. So we wouldn't be a burden to you. It's an example of self-sacrificial love. We had the right, but we laid down the right because of love so that we wouldn't be a burden to you. This is a wonderful Christian ethic that we see um, because we live in a world, especially as Americans, we, we take our rights very seriously and we're thankful to God to have so many rights. Um, and we are surrounded by people sometimes who insist on their rights. Um, and it's not at all to diminish our rights or to say that it's not a privilege from God to have them. But sometimes as Christians, we recognize we're called to lay down the rights we have for the sake of love especially for the sake of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. That it's a God-honoring thing to lay down our rights to love others and not be a burden to them. This is a very important teaching, I think, to remind us, our, remind us that that is one of the chief and foremost first Christian callings is one of self-denial. To deny ourselves, pick up our crosses, and follow Jesus. And in that sense, isn't Paul really saying, in doing that, I was just following the example I saw in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because didn't he have the right to remain at the right hand of his Father in heaven? Didn't he have the right when he came into this world and lived a perfect life in service of his Father, to enter into the rest of his reward that he alone as a righteous man in the history of the world had earned by his merit? He had the right to rest. And he laid down that right and died a horrible death on the cross, not just physically but spiritually, suffering the wrath of God against our sins. And, and Paul can say, I'm just imitating what I saw of the Lord Jesus Christ, who had the right to enter into heaven, to enter into heaven right away on his own authority, but he laid it down. He had the right to be king in this world. He laid it down. And why did he lay it down? Because he loved us and gave himself up for us. We have that example of that self-sacrificial love in the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ to remove the burden from us so that we would no longer be burdened by our sin and our misery and the curse that inevitably would come. Um, he laid it down so that we might be saved. 
And Paul is just imitating Christ by laying down his right to lift off others' burdens. And Paul is saying this is an example we all ought to imitate. To see what we can do for our brothers and sisters to relieve their burdens. And especially as it comes back full circle to the idol in particular. He says to them, you have become a double burden. Um, you, are, you are becoming a burden financially, and you're becoming a burden by being busybodies. Um, and look back to our conduct and think how you can be a double blessing. We lifted the burden off of you so you wouldn't have to support us, and we fed you with the very bread of life, the word of God. Um, and that's the conduct that we have to imitate. He's saying to the idol, you have no right to be supported by the church if you refuse to work. Um, Stop doing what you're doing. And Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Uh, That's the conduct to imitate. And then Paul finally ends with a call to persevere. Um, Doing good is hard work. Self-sacrifice is hard work. It's not an easy sell, right, to say, you know, all the... There are a lot of churches these days that are changing their names to try to be innovative and edgy, and sometimes you drive by them and you don't even know that they're churches. Uh, But I've noticed that none of them become self-denial church Um, or, you know, death sentence church. Um, That doesn't appeal to people. No one's going to want to come into that church. But that's exactly what Jesus was saying to people when he said what the cost of following him would be. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. For us, crosses you know, can be like a little thing we wear around our neck. For them, it was a clear sign of the worst kind of way you could be executed. You know, pick up your cross? Who wants to do that? I know when I see someone carrying a cross through town where they're going, and I'm not sure I want to go there. It's a hard calling to persevere to persevere in doing good, to persevere in sacrificing, especially when it doesn't seem to be appreciated, when it doesn't seem to be paying off. And that's why Paul says what he says in verse 13. Um, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Um, Paul says to the idol, don't be a burden because burdens tire people out. Burdens tire people out. And a a Christian trying to live a life of self-sacrifice in this world can be tired out. Can just think, I'm not sure this is doing any good. I'm not sure this is really paying off. There's a real danger that when we live as Christians, we can lose heart in the world. And I think Paul pastorally is dealing with that danger in the church. They've been giving and giving to support the idol. They've been admonishing and admonishing. They've been pestered by these busybodies running around in the church. And Paul can see that there's a danger that those who are dealing with all of this can just become weary. And so Paul has to come and say, don't grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in doing good. Um, We we need that admonition. We need that help. Uh, We need to be reminded of that. 
because so often doing good in this world doesn't pay. Um, I remember once offering food to a homeless person. He turned it down because he didn't like that kind of food. But he was holding a sign saying, I'm hungry, please help. Um, I remember once going through a checkout stand and the, the cashier gave me too much money and change. And I handed it back to her. She rolled her eyes like, now I'm going to have to figure out what to do with this. And I thought, I thought I was helping you out. And, you know, it may, it, you can be threatened to grow weary. Like, all right, then you won't get the sandwich next time or you won't get the change next time. I'll put it in my pocket. This is the thanks I get for doing good. That kind of stuff can make you grow weary. And so what does Paul have to call our attention back to? Don't grow weary in doing good. Why? Because even if no one else sees or appreciates it, the Lord sees it. The Lord sees it. The Lord sees the service that's done in His name. And He regards even little things done in His service as big things. Lots of Christians grow weary because they wish they could do some big thing for the Lord. And they just recognize, I'm doing a lot of little acts of service. But if I could do something big, then maybe I'd feel good about it. But I'm sort of growing weary of not making an impact. Um, but think when the Lord Jesus gives us that picture of the final judgment in Matthew 25. What are the things for which the righteous are commended and the unrighteous are condemned? Think about that. As I read these words of our Lord, think about this. Are these big things or are these little things? When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and He will place the sheep on His right but the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. We must do good knowing that the Lord sees, even when we have little appreciation for it in the world. Uh, Calvin summarizes Paul here wonderfully. Paul admonishes us that though there are many that are undeserving, while others abuse our generosity, we must not on this account stop helping those that need our aid. Here we have a statement worthy of being observed that whoever, however ingratitude, moroseness, pride, arrogance, and other unseemly attitudes on the part of the poor may have a tendency to annoy us or to dispirit us from a feeling of weariness, we must nevertheless and never stop aiming at doing good. Don't grow weary of doing good. The Lord sees um, and God's people experience the good that we give one another in the household of faith. And so, brothers and sisters, don't grow weary 
in doing good. The Lord sees. The Lord will not fail to reward out of the riches of his grace even the small things that are done in his service. So may our love for him inspire us all to get to work for the Lord, uh, to do good uh, for those who are the household of faith and for the world. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this word. Thank you for the reminder to all of us to be sure that we are minding our business and doing the things that we are called to do before your face in this world and staying away from a business that is not our own. We thank you for your patience with us and the way you speak tenderly to sinners, calling them back to yourself. We pray that we would follow the example that Paul has given to us of that self-sacrificial love that first looks to lift the burden off our brothers and sisters in Christ before asserting our own rights and things. We pray that we would honor you in that way and in following Paul's example, also follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we think about his great rights as the second person of the Holy Trinity, we stand in awe that he should give up those rights for our sake, that he would give up what was his own, that he might lift our burdens and give us what we did not deserve and what he had earned. We pray, Lord, that his example might always be before our minds as we do good, to know that you are pleased in heaven however it is received here on earth, and that we might not grow weary of serving you, but might always remember that you see and will not fail to reward out of the abundance of your grace those things that we offer back to you from your gifts to us. So help us in these things, Lord, to honor you and to shine like stars in this world by serving even as our King served. And hear us, we pray in his name. Amen.